This episode of the Pellicle podcast is sponsored by Hand and Heart. Hand and Heart is a business and workplace consultancy. We educate people, we solve problems, we guide growth, and we nurture teams. We believe the workplace will transform over the next five years. We have experience with businesses of every shape, size, and industry. We've worked with over 80 businesses in the last five years, and we've educated over 250 owners and employees using our business ecosystem model. By keeping things digital, we keep it affordable, and we are available worldwide on your time. We're giving Pellicle listeners a free 30-minute advice session. You could be a business owner wondering what the hell DE&I means, or you're at a loss of how to even start your business or develop systems to improve your business. We can help you. To sign up, head to www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle and register. That's www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle to book your free session. Thank you for listening. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis. Thanks again for tuning in. Today, I'm really happy to bring you at long last, the long awaited question and answer episode. A few episodes ago, I asked listeners of this show to send me in some questions to answer and I've collated them and I'm going to work through those later. There wasn't too many questions, so I'm pleased to say I'll be able to answer all of them. There's some really good questions too, and I'm really looking forward to digging into those in a moment's time. First though, I think it's time we checked in. On the last episode of this show, I spent a good 20-25 minutes digging into some bigger news topics, because I think it's important to dig into what's happening in the worlds of beer, wine and cider, because that's what's interesting to us at Pellicle, especially beer. I'm a beer guy, so that's where most of my thought is most of the time. But it's also worth reminding ourselves that there's some really good beer out there being made. There's some great places to drink it in. And I've been back on the road a bit recently and enjoying some great pints in some places I've never been before. I think before I go into this, it's worth going back to a piece I wrote in early September about visiting the Leeds International Beer Festival and essentially what happened is I had an anxiety attack and I didn't have a very nice time and I wrote about that in a piece called I Don't Think I'm Ready Yet which you can read on the Pellicle site but I've been thinking about that since the new year and post this nightmarish Omicron wave which felt like it put us back to square one. It didn't but it certainly felt that way. And how since then I've kind of re-emerged into the world with a new confidence and much less anxiety about going out. And I think it's because my desire to go out and my deep awareness of how beneficial visiting the pub and seeing friends is to my mental health is overruling the fear. In fact, I was in a very busy Port Street beer house in Manchester a few weeks ago, and Manchester City had just beaten Chelsea. And so all the Manchester City fans had walked into town, and Port Street beer house is one of the first pubs they get to. So it was absolutely rammed. But I really wanted to go in there and try the New Barns table beer on cask because it was brewed by my Pellicle co-founder, Johnny Hamilton. I was really excited to try it. And my desire to sit in that pub and drink that beer was greater than my nervousness. And I realized that my perspective had shifted. This was becoming a more of a normal thing. Maybe it's because I'd had the booster. Maybe it's because I'd had the virus. But I didn't feel that same anxiety. Maybe I need to revisit this in writing or revisit it in a full podcast, but I think I am ready to go back to bigger events. I really want to see some live music. I really want to go to a beer festival and properly relax and enjoy myself. I've got some beer festivals planned for the summer already. Pellicle will be at Fine Fest 
on the first weekend of June, back in the Glen, doing talks for Fine Ales. We can't wait for that. But yeah, I've been feeling good and I've been out and about. And what I've really been enjoying is visiting a couple of towns I've not been to recently. I went to Leeds. I've been there a lot. And I did manage to get to a new pub I really want to mention just quickly called The Banker's Cat, a Thornbridge pub. I want to mention it because I immediately loved it when I walked in and I had an absolutely smashing pint of Jaipur. That's a beer I've been enjoying on cask immensely at the moment. But near Leeds is a town called Bradford that I hadn't been to since I was a little kid to visit an art gallery and see the works of David Hockney. I'd never been there as an adult, certainly not with the intention of drinking beer. And I went with the founders of Bundobust, Marco Husak and Maya Patel, along with writer Will Hawkes, who is writing this kind of origin story of their restaurant and craft beer bar chain, Bundabust. Now, they were on the podcast to talk about the opening of their brewery a few episodes ago, but Will had pitched me this article, and instead of just going to the restaurant and writing about what they do, he asked them if we could spend a day with them in Bradford and go right back to the beginning of their origin story, really, because it's fascinating. So we did that. And what I did is I hired myself to go and do the photography. We worked our way through some curry houses and pubs in Bradford. A particular highlight right at the start of the day was a pub called The Fighting Cock, where I drank an incredible pint of Timothy Taylor's Boltmaker. Now, I want to state for the record that politically, I don't really see eye to eye with the owners of Timothy Taylor's Brewery. But you walk in and everyone else had ordered Timothy Taylor's beer it looked fantastic coming off the hand pull, and I thought, well, I'm going to have one of their beers. I'm going to put my politics to one side. And you know what? I did enjoy it. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that if you listen to episode 18 of this podcast, you can hear me talking about how they're one of a number of breweries that want smaller breweries to pay more taxes. But anyway, you should go back and listen to episode 18 to understand that. I won't go into that in too much detail here. But the Fighting Cock, that was a great pub. But then Bradford just continually surprised me with great beer bars like the Record Cafe and the Exchange. It was a fantastic day out. We just about made our last train home. And that article will be with you very soon. It's a proper long read. We haven't published a long read like this in a while. And it's excellent. So I look forward to publishing that on the site soon. Another place I got to visit recently was Kendall on the edge of the Lake District. I was invited up there by a little brewery called Ganyam, a brand new brewery you really should be keeping an eye on. They're a very exciting little brewery based in Kendall and they hosted me for a book event to talk about my book, Modern British Beer, still available if you haven't bought a copy. But the night before the event, one of the brewery's founders, William Burgess, who will be on this podcast in a few episodes time, I did record an interview with him while I was there. He showed me around the beer bars of Kendall and how much it had changed in the last few years. It was really interesting following him around because like me, he spent a lot of time living in London. He used to work at a little craft beer bar called Mason and Taylor, which no longer exists. He worked at the Old Fountain and is a huge beer enthusiast. But he took me to some wonderful beer places in Kendall, including a wonderful pub called The New Union, a great little bar called Indiecraft, and another bar owned by Fell Brewery. The bar's just called Fell Bar, which was not on my radar at all. And I had some fantastic beers in there. And they told me they had a bar in Manchester, in Chorlton, only a couple of miles down the road from me. So I'll be certainly popping in there soon. But visiting these places, it's just a reminder that what we've seen in beer that many people were convinced was a city-centric fad is just becoming a very normal thing. Every time I visit a small to mid-sized town, there's a great beer place there with loads of taps. And if it's in the north, it'll usually have loads of cask too. This is not an anomalous, unusual thing. And it's great to see the enthusiasm these bars have for great beer, not just for all the exciting IPAs and whatnot coming out, but interesting cask bitters and German and Czech lagers and all sorts of wonderful beers. Beers for everyone. Non-alcoholic beers, gluten-free beers. It's a bit different to the old idea of the local. Not that that's gone away. Those pubs still exist. There's plenty of them. But there's also plenty of new choices that are welcoming if you never felt welcome in pubs before. 
things aren't perfect, but they are changing. And I'm just feeling good to be out and about having some pints. I'm off to London this week and I'm going to visit some old favourites. I've got a hankering to visit the Southampton Arms. I've not been there in a couple of years. So I'm looking forward to more trips really soon. Just before we plough into these great questions I've been sent, I want to talk briefly about Pellicle's plan for 2022. I've mentioned this in a few other episodes, but what we're trying to do is increase our funding so we can pay our contributors more. We're pretty pleased that every time we publish an article on the Pellicle website, we are paying a fair rate to the writers, the photographers and the illustrators involved with that work. But we think we can do better. We want to pay them more. And we're going to, on the 1st of May, our third birthday, we're going to put our rates up. That is happening regardless of whether we meet our funding target or not. However, if we don't meet our funding target, it does mean that in a few months' time, we'll probably have to stop publishing articles. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I hope it's not going to happen. But what we need to do is make sure we hit our next funding target on our Patreon. What I'm asking is, if you enjoy listening to this podcast or reading the content we publish on our website, then please go to patreon.com forward slash mag and consider giving us a few pounds a month. In fact, the tiers we've set up start from £1 a month, if that's all you can afford. Every time you give us a little bit of money, you know, I'm talking about the price of a pint of beer, really, then that money goes directly into paying people to make great writing, great photography, great illustration. And we just want to keep doing that and improving the content. And if we pay more money to our contributors, then that content will keep improving. Pellicle will always be free to read. I personally don't believe in the paywall model. Not everyone can afford to subscribe to stuff. And I believe the stuff we're writing about should be accessible to everyone. But if you can afford it, we're asking that you just give us a little bit of money a month to keep it that way and to ensure that the people working hard on what you're enjoying reading and listening to are getting paid a fair rate for their work. That link again is patreon.com forward slash mag. It's in the show notes. It's on the website. And if you've got any questions about it, then just drop me an email. I'm happy to talk openly about how we work financially. I think that's really important to be 100% transparent. My email is matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, at pellicalmag.com. And who knows, if you ask me a question, I might even answer it in a future episode of this podcast. I'm not sure I'll do a QA and a episode like this again. It's an interesting experiment just to see how this works, try and break the format up a little bit. But... If you do have a burning question for me, I always do these preambles so you can email me and I'll answer it here. Anyway, enough waiting around. Let's get into these questions. So the first question I've been sent is from Stefan Peter, who is based in Central Europe and tells me that they've been following with curiosity this trend in the UK for brewing contemporary British lagers, but very much inspired by the traditions of Central Europe. I'm talking Germany and the Czech Republic. They tell me it's fascinating to watch English breweries producing beers like Mertzen or beers like Czerny Specialny from the Czech Republic. They're really interested in that, but they don't see the same trend in the Czech Republic or in Germany where brewers are trying to interpret styles like ESB or bitter or mild. And they ask, how do I, as someone familiar with these continental archetypes of these beers, as they put it, see this new tendency towards British brewers focusing on traditional German and Czech lagers? I think it's interesting because people have been saying for years that lager is coming back like this is going to be the year of lager and I think the last couple of years have been the years of lager we are currently in a position where we have some UK breweries making some of the best lagers in the world I'm talking about your Braybrooks your Lost and Grounded your Utopians your New Barns just to name a handful of breweries and I think this has partly come out of a genuine desire for brewers to brew the kind of beers that they're really interested in but also a deep awareness that lager is the best-selling style of beer in the world, 
by a long way. And so there is a huge demand for great lager. It's interesting to me because if you cast your mind back to the early days of craft beer, I'm talking 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, it was very fashionable for breweries to rail against lager beers. If you think about the lager traditions of the UK and the US, this was about producing high volume product cheaply, beers that either didn't taste that nice or didn't taste of very much. Beers like Carling, Stella, Carlsberg, that kind of thing. And in the US, you've got your light beers, your Budweiser's, your Miller's, your Coors. It's really interesting because the origin of these beers is in Europe. They are descendants from traditional European styles brewed using the ingredients and the brewing equipment available to them in those countries. But the rise of craft beer and not to mention the internet and access to information and the ability to travel to these countries easily and taste these beers at the source and visit German hop farms or maltings in Franconia, that kind of thing. This has allowed brewers to really access the heart of what makes these beers tick. And in terms of equipment, breweries in the UK would traditionally be set up with infusion mashing systems for making ales. But if you look at the newer breweries, they've set their breweries up so that they can brew lager using the same techniques and equipment as their Czech or German counterparts. And in the US, you know, decoction mashing is all the rage, whether you believe it adds to the flavour of a beer or not. I'm a big fan of decoction pilsners, where you essentially boil off parts of the mash, creating the mallard reaction and the caramelization of sugars, adding body to the beer. A lot of traditional German and Czech brewers use this technique because that's what their equipment demanded. But it was also used because many, many years ago, barley was not modified enough and they had to do it to get the sugar they required, the extract from the barley so that they could make the required amount of alcohol. It's kind of a counterproductive technique these days, but people love it and brewers seem to find it gives them the kind of beers they are trying to make. And it's because of this, because of this knowledge and enthusiasm for great continental lager, Munich Hellers, Czech pale lagers, that we've seen this explosion in prevalence and in quality. And that will continue to happen. There is a great desire for lager and a lot of people who got into beer 10, 15 years ago, who got really into IPA, have learned that they love a good lager. I'm speaking from personal experience. I love a good lager. But for a few years, I stopped drinking them altogether because I didn't think they were very good. Brewers like Stone in the US told me that they were fizzy yellow piss. So no, of course I wasn't going to drink them because I wanted to drink craft beer. Turns out great lager was craft all along. Will you see this reciprocated in Europe? Will European craft brewers start making best bitters and milds or American IPAs. I have seen and drank American IPAs on trips to Europe. But then I think about how brewers regard their brewing traditions. Czechs and Germans are really proud of their brewing traditions. They know what they've got. I remember visiting a small craft brewer in the Czech Republic a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, and all they wanted to do was brew Czech Pilsner in the traditional way with decoction mashing, open fermentation, using Moravian barley and Czech Sartz hops. That was craft beer to them. But if you think about English brewers, they want to brew all these styles they've heard about from all over the world. Why would a German brewer need to brew a best bitter when they have styles like alt beer? If you think about alt beer, a sort of reddish brown, slightly bitter, easy drinking session beer, that is a German best bitter served in a German way. Those traditions already exist and German brewers are like, we already have that. Why do we need to make a cask bitter? I think maybe in a few years you might see a few brewers try to replicate English brewing traditions. There's definitely a fascination in traditional English styles at the moment, so that might be an emergence. But I think... Brewing culture in Central Europe is different to the UK. There's a different respect to it. What's changing in the UK now is from the new wave of brewers is there's a newfound respect for homegrown brewing traditions, which is why we're seeing a lot of the most hyped breweries, the brewers that made their names with hazy, juicy IPAs, are now turning to styles like bitter, mild and porter because they realise there is a deep love for them 
both from the people who drink their beers and from themselves. I hope that answers your question about the rise of lagers and why European brewers haven't really started making cask bitter. Maybe they will. Maybe you're a European brewer listening to this making a cask bitter. Why don't you let me know about it? The next question is from Dan Keeley. He asked me two questions, actually, but the first one is about episode 25, where I spent a lot of time giving an overview of the situation that happened at McKellar, which was in relation to accusations of toxic workplace culture. And you can listen to episode 25, which is called Modern British Beer, if you want to listen to that. Dan says that holding McKellar to account is all good, but do we think that camera are being held to the same standards. Are they really inclusive and welcoming? I think the timing of this question is great because camera have been in the news recently because they released a survey asking people to report their experiences of camera, asking for cases of racism and sexism and how people feel about the organisation and its events. This survey was picked up by a few tabloids, including The Sun and The Daily Express here in the UK, and they used the term woke and wokeism as a slur. Those words are not slurs. Being aware of social injustices is not a bad thing, despite certain people trying to tell you that it is very bizarre. Anyway, are we holding camera to the same standards? Well, what's interesting about this survey is that camera is holding itself to those standards. It is allowing people to come forward and anonymously report incidences and tell them what they think. Actually, being covered in the tabloids boosted that. It had the reverse effect, and they probably had a lot more answers to their survey than they expected, which is a good thing. Looking at camera historically, yes, there's been a lot of incidences where they haven't done the right thing or haven't acted fast enough. A great example of this is there used to be a t-shirt stand at the Great British Beer Festival every August that had offensive t-shirts and it took a lot of campaigning to get them to get rid of that t-shirt stand. It's not there anymore. When you allow stuff like that at a beer festival, it sends a signal to people who might make a sexist remark or a racist comment that that's okay. I think the thing to remember with camera is it's not a business. It's a consumer organization, largely volunteer-led, bar a few people in the central office in St Albans. So any member can get involved at a branch level and influence camera policy and the way it acts and is a reflection of camera. So camera is a broad church, which means there's a lot of difference in opinions. I used to be very anti-camera. I used to think they were tired old hat, they had no place in beer. Much like I used to think that lager was boring, but time and experience changes that. And my experience of camera has gone from one that has, I've been quite distant from it. And now I work with them quite a lot. I write for Beer Magazine, their quarterly magazine. I wrote a book that they published, Modern British Beer. And I've also written a few articles for their Learn and Discover educational part of their website. And working with them, centrally made me realize that this is a organization that is deeply aware of how it is perceived and the way it has behaved in the past and it is working to make amends. I think this work is challenging at the moment because people demand accountability and transparency which means posting about it regularly on the internet and making sure people can read about it and I think when that is not happening Like, for example, this isn't happening with a lot of brewers that really should be doing this at the moment. But if that's not happening, then people start to think, well, is anything happening at all? But my perspective is that at a central level, camera are working very hard to change this image. And I've also started getting involved with my local branch and doing some grassroots pub and beer campaigning. My branch is Stockport and South Manchester, headed by the legendary John Clark. And I found it very inclusive. And welcoming. I am a straight white man, so take that with a pinch of salt. But I think the only way camera changes is if people get involved and have the desire to make that change. It's a consumer organization. And I think camera on a consumer level is 
really important because cask is still a national treasure. It still needs campaigning for, it still needs protecting. Camera have done a lot of good work in that regard, but it's not work that's just like finished. It's not a tick in a box. It's a continual, endless task. I think there is greater scrutiny on camera than there has ever been. But I also know that they've got about 10,000 members under 25. There are people within the organization well aware of how it's perceived by some. And that perception is not accurate. There's a lot of ageism, a lot of ableism that goes towards camera members. Something I'm writing about at the moment or trying to find the words to write about. Everyone, beer or not, needs to be held to the same standards. So I think the short answer, Dan, is yes, they are being held to the same standards as people like McKellar and people like Brewdog. And they are largely inclusive and welcoming, but there are elements, branches that might not seem that way or might not be. But the organisation is aware of that and is trying to change that. There are many people who, when this survey came out, said they would resign. They didn't want to be part of an organisation that was doing work in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. And to them, I say, good, fuck off. You're not welcome. If you're not going to be welcoming to people within the organisation, then you've got no place within it. Goodbye. So there, that's what I think, Dan. I thought I'd deal with that as delicately as possible. It's a delicate question, isn't it? But thanks for that. That was a really good question. My next question is from Lana Svitankova, who has been thinking about hazies again. Aren't we all thinking about hazies? And would like to hear my thoughts about what awaits beer, taking into account the ubiquitousness of hazy pale ales and IPAs. Will brewers continue churning out very samey sweet juice bombs? Lana says she visited a tap room and asked for the least sweet dipper and was told they're all sweet because they're dipper after all. And that she understands that this style is bringing a lot of people into craft beer and it sells well. But is it undermining the variety and the expression and the experimentation available to brewers? This is a really good question. And Dan, who asked the previous question, he also asked what will come to replace New England IPAs. What's really interesting about New England IPA to me is it represents the end point of our phase in beer. Hazy IPA is beer's own form of late stage capitalism. When craft beer first emerged, and I'm not talking 10, 15 years ago, I'm talking in the late 80s, early 90s, it was about bringing back flavour and innovation into beer that brewers thought was lacking. And then it was about experimenting with different styles of beer and making people aware that beer wasn't just pretty bland lager. There was a lot of flavour and interesting ingredients available and interesting styles to play with. Belgian styles, German styles, Czech styles classic English styles brewed a hundred years ago and then it was about pushing the envelope trying new hop varieties new yeasts different adjuncts in the beer inevitably some of the beers that came out of that were very sweet because that's what some people's palates demanded but we also got rambunctiously bitter barrel-aged stouts and Belgian quadruples and all sorts of fascinating beer one style that's always been at the centre of beer moving forward has been IPA because craft beer drinkers love hoppy beer. And initially it was about what we used to call the American IPA when all American IPAs were clear and piney and citrusy and bitter. And then people started to riff on that style. You know, if you think about Maine Beer Co. and The Alchemist up in the northeast corner of the US, they tried to take the American IPA and try some different hops, different techniques, play around with recipes, and then they created this new wave of New England IPAs, which was taken away from them. The most current hazy, juicy IPAs are a long way away from beers like Heady Topper, which feels like kind of an in-between beer from the West Coast American IPA days. But something that's interesting that started happening when so many new breweries started emerging over the last 10, 15 years is instead of trying to express new styles or historic recipes or create something that represented a point of difference, every brewer started trying to make the same beer because it was what sold, it was what was keeping these folks in business. And so we got so many copycat, hazy beers hopped with citra, mosaic, 
El Dorado, Idaho 7, Sabro. Actually, even though a lot of them use different hops, they taste pretty damn similar. And some people are very good at making them. And some people have a crack at making them and they're not what they're good at making. Maybe they were better at making West Coast IPAs or lagers or best bitters. New England IPAs are here to stay. Like This is a style that will be around forever. I'm not sure New England IPA means a lot to most people. Neither does West Coast IPA. It's better off if you tell someone this beer is very bitter and clean tasting. This beer is hazy and juicy. Those are more important descriptors to most people than Nipah, which is a pretty meaningless term unless you're really at the centre of craft beer fandom. But something that's interesting to me that's happening now, if I use a couple of very local references who are very good at making New England IPA, Cloudwater and Track Bruco, right over the road from each other here in the centre of Manchester, they are known for making these kinds of beers. But if you go to their tap rooms now, they're producing... Lagers, brown ales, best bitters, porters, red ales, vices. They are investing in styles and experimenting in the way that the craft beer pioneers did 20, 30 years ago. The cycle is repeating. You can go into these tap rooms and they have plenty of double IPAs. And actually, if they don't, customers that like those beers will complain because that's what they're known for. It's their MO, if you will. But I go there and I'm not really a a hazy IPA drinker. Occasionally I do fancy one, but usually I like a nice clean West Coast IPA, a lager or a Cascale. And I'm seeing this happening not just at these two breweries, but if you look at some of the most hype-led breweries in the UK, North Brewing, Dea, Verdant. North just released a Cas Porter. Dea have got a bitter out called Best Foot Forward. Verdant have just released a Best Bitter in their tap room on Cask. This is evidence to me that we've probably reached the end of the growing peak of New England IPA. It will dominate that category, that really central, super enthusiast-led craft beer thing. But those drinkers, especially drinkers who came into beer maybe two, three years ago, will maybe have a moment like I did in 2013 when they drink a lager full of noble hops and lovely decoction mash character that I talked about earlier and go, oh, hey. Lager's actually pretty delicious. Everyone's palate is always evolving. So the future is hopefully going to be less about this ubiquitousness. Certainly, the evidence presented to me from the beer bars and brewery tap rooms in Manchester, in Leeds and in London that I've been to recently is that breweries are getting more interested in different styles, but so are customers. Customers are also wanting comforting beers, familiar beer styles. A double IPA is not a comforting beer style. It's a beer about intensity and experiencing a lot of flavour at once, but you can't drink them all night. And people want to go out now and they want to drink pints of something that is delicious and refreshing and it's not going to distract them from the conversation with their friends. Maybe for a few minutes, let's talk about how good this beer is and then let's talk about something else because it is just their underpinning that social moment and the beers that we drink. That's why more people I see are drinking pints again now, pints of delicious cask, because it's underpinning that moment. Yeah, we're definitely moving away from the Nipah stage, the hazy IPA stage. But what's interesting is that this beer has been created and will be here forever. And that juicy, hazy style brings people into beer every single day. So I have a lot of respect for it. And sometimes I do fancy a nice, hazy, juicy beer. Dan, who asked the previous question, asked what will come next to replace New England IPAs. I think in terms of IPAs themselves, we've seen the rise of cold IPA. But if you dig into what those are, it's just a rebadged India Pale Lager or IPL, or it's kind of like an India Pale Kolsch, not from Cologne, but an ale that's been lagered, so it's more refreshing, essentially giving you something that is a more refreshing version of a New England IPA. I was just talking about that beer that doesn't overwhelm the senses. It's essentially the culmination of that desire for these flavours in a package that's more drinkable. He also asked, whatever happened to the Brut IPA? Which is really interesting to me because most of the beers that came out in the Brut IPA craze were not Brut IPAs. The Brut IPA trend was really interesting to me because When most brewers want to brew a style, say they wanted to brew a Munich Hellers, 
they can go to Munich and they can taste those beers in situ and they can visit the hop farms at Hallertau and Tetnang and go to the malt houses in Bamberg and taste the ingredients and capture that sense of place in the beers they're trying to make. But with Brut IPA, this guy called Kim Sturdevant, who was the brewer at the now sadly closed social brew pub in San Francisco, he brewed a style of IPA using an enzyme to really lower the sugar so it was really dry. But in the tap room, he served it under high pressure so it had all this extra carbonation to give it this almost champagne-like effervescence which boosted the aroma and gave it this sparkling wine-like character. But what happened was this recipe was copied via the internet. People saw it was taking off online so they tried to make it themselves but no one was going to san francisco to the social and drinking kim's effort no one was going to the other breweries in san francisco that had been to the social and gone oh let's try a version of this for ourselves and so most of the brute ipas that did appear were not brute ipas and i didn't realize this i was drinking them in the uk the ones that did come out and going there's not much to these and then on a visit to San Francisco, I was at Hen House Brewery in Santa Rosa and they had one on tap and they explained to me how it was served under higher pressure to boost the aroma and give it that effervescence, which made it this Brut IPA. It wasn't just about it being dry alone. And I drank that and suddenly I got it. I was like, ah, I'm finally drinking a Brut IPA. And every time I went back to the UK and tried one, I was like, it's missing this crucial element that's been lost in translation. And so... Brewers are just making beer that is a very dry IPA. What's going to come next to replace New England IPAs? I actually think there's going to be a bit of IPA regression, which ties in with this emergence of styles like brown ales and milds and bitters. Because as we worked our way towards New England IPA, lots of interesting styles like black IPA, red IPA, Belgian IPA, white IPA, which is like a wit beer IPA hybrid, These all came out and I think brewers are going to go back to these styles and we'll see more variety, not just in beer in general, but in IPA again. People don't seem to be as intimidated by darker beers on the menu at the moment. People don't seem to consider them as heavy. There's a desire for comfort and darker beers are very, very comforting. Any beer with a malt lead flavor is going to taste more comforting than something that is just hops and nothing else. So in terms of IPA, we're going to see more varieties on the expression, and I am here for it. Black IPAs on cask, please. I will revel in those when they become available. Thanks for all your questions, Dan and Lana. Greg Bowman asks, where do I see the UK beer scene going in the next five years? Will there be continuous expansion or will there be retraction and consolidation? So this is a well-timed question because over in the US, there have been some pretty major closures announced, including Modern Times, which is closing four of its eight locations. I feel really bad for the staff at these places. And Oscar Blues, which just got bought by Monster, it's closing its tap room in Boulder, which I've been to a few times. These are breweries that are supposedly doing really well, the trailblazers, but in growth, a lot of debt has been accrued. And if we look to the UK, there has been a lot of growth and there is a lot of debt in the market. I've already seen a few smaller breweries either close down or put themselves up for sale. One in particular, the Cheshire Brewhouse in Congleton, not far from here in Manchester, owned by a chap called Shane Swindles, makes great beers, but he announced that his brewery is up for sale. So we are starting to see the impact of the pandemic the rise in wage and energy and raw material costs, and Brexit. Brexit is having a hugely negative effect on the industry. So yes, I do think we are now going to see maybe not shrinkage, but certainly flatlining. There will always be room for some breweries to grow, but there's a lot of tank space at the moment out there. New breweries will continue to emerge. I mean, I referenced Ganyam, at the start of this show. They're a year old, small, five-barrel brewery, and they look like they've got a great future ahead of them. Look at breweries like New Barns and Donzoco and Beak that have emerged in the last five years. I think they've got great futures ahead of them. 
Another great example is Elusive, which is another five-barrel brewery that has just played it safe and is looking to just gradually expand. And it's going to do this by contract brewing a few batches at Double Barrel Brewery in Reading. But I do think one thing we've learned is that the breweries that have tried to grow as big as possible and become these national brands, people are more interested in unusual breweries because they're small, because they reflect that area, that region, that city. And when a brewery grows beyond that level, it ceases to be of that place and it kind of loses a little bit of brand equity. If you look at breweries like London Fields and Hop Stuff, Four Pure and Magic Rock that have all not had great news recently, this is evidence that there isn't that much desire for breweries that look like that to be these big monsters. There's only space for one or two Camdens or Beaver Towns. They've taken up that gap in the market. And I don't think there is room for a brewery to grow into that now. What I do see is maybe some of these bigger craft breweries settling in and starting to look a bit like the family brewers of old, being regional powerhouses. You know, look at North and Northern Monk. It's in the name. They are of the North. Although I wouldn't be surprised if breweries like that started opening lots more bars and pubs all over the UK. But keeping a piece of what makes them intrinsic to their area and to their customers, that regionality is going to become increasingly important. I don't think the craft beer market is going to shrink because there's just enough new breweries coming through to balance out the closures. There will be more closures. It's going to be an immensely difficult year or few years for craft beer. But there is also a sense that post-pandemic, we all have a big desire to go out and drink in pubs. And so it's not all bad news. Only the shrewdest breweries will survive. The ones that manage their cash flow and don't go into too much debt. The breweries in debt, I'd be worried about what happens to them over the next few years. But I'm an optimist. I have faith in British beer. I want to write about it for the rest of my life. So I have to be that way, really. Greg also asks, is there much point buying beer from abroad? And that's interesting because when I first got into craft beer, I bought so much imported American beer and I bought lots of different interesting Belgian beers. And these days I pretty much drink UK beer exclusively. But I'm very lucky that in my job I get to travel. I accept that not everyone has the opportunity to do that. And the reason why imported beer is valuable You know, if beer tastes of a place, let's say Augustina Hellas, that is a Munich Hellas through and through. That tastes of Munich, but not everyone can just jump on a plane and go to Germany, right? You want to drink that beer. And so occasionally, yes, I want an Augustina. I want an Orval. I want to try something from a US brewery I've never heard before because that's interesting. That's exciting. That will always be a part of people's beer experience. But what's changed is there are so many UK breweries brewing brilliant examples of styles of beer from all over the world that it is definitely a different market. There is not the desire for imported beer that there was. Greg does say a wild ale from the US is unlikely to taste vastly superior than the one from Burning Sky or Little Earth. And that is very true, but it might taste different. It might surprise you. You know, when I tried Exfis from Bale Breaker in Yakima towards the end of last year, my mind was blown. That beer was amazing. You know, I will seek out their beers again when I get the chance to. That was very special. But nine times out of 10, I'm having a Burning Sky or a Little Earth project. Much like someone in Yakima, nine times out of 10, is having a bale breaker and they might get excited if they get a Burning Sky. I hope they do because they're missing out if they don't. Getting into the last few questions now. And Paul McGuinn says that they keep hearing that cask beer is dying, but as a long-term cask beer enthusiast, he can't help but think that it feels stronger than ever. And he talks about Cloudwater, 2x2 and Brew York and how they're producing some amazing stuff on cask, and I agree. In fact, he describes it as the kind of cask they would only have dreamed of when they used to get excited by the Weatherspoon's Real Ale Festivals. What are my thoughts on the current state of cask beer? I could do a whole hour on this. And I've been talking quite a lot already. So in brief, I'm excited about cask because I think the explosion in brewers over the last few years gave the traditional cask producers a real 
kick up the arse. It also gave the ingredient producers, the maltsters and the hop farmers, a kick up the arse. And so there has been a drive for quality right down the supply chain in order to compete. There are some outliers that are not producing ingredients and beers that of good quality. But I think the way consumers are going now is they don't want a bad pint. They are happy largely to pay a little bit more for a good pint. I used to say we need to charge more for cask beer. I've changed my tune on that because if you put the price of cask up too much, it becomes inaccessible. I talked right at the start of the podcast about how I want Pellicle to be free because I don't want it to be inaccessible to people. If you make cask six pounds a pint, then a lot of people who are used to paying three, four pounds a pint for it will no longer be able to access it. And that would be a shame. That would kill cask off, I reckon. Largely, I think the future for cask is very positive because after the new wave of brewers have focused so much on US beer trends, Belgian beer trends, they are now looking at our own beer culture and going, wow, this was great all along. And there's an investment in UK beer culture. And I think coming back to what Greg asked me earlier about where do I see the UK beer scene in five years time? I think that all these brewers that have expanded are looking to cask because it takes less time to brew. It's quite a quick product to produce and it needs to be sold fast in the market. It needs to turn over quickly and that turnover will help them stay in business. So there's a financial aspect of why cask is becoming more popular, especially if you consider how much it costs to produce a double dry hopped double IPA. That's a very expensive beer to make, a best bitter not so much. And the cost of raw materials is really going up quite a lot. But I'm excited for cask. I'm drinking more cask now than I ever have before. Maybe it's because I've moved to another side of the country and there's definitely more focus on the quality of good cask here in Manchester than I was used to down in London, even though there are some brilliant places in London for cask. But yeah, my thoughts are I'm feeling immensely positive about it, immensely optimistic about the opportunities for cask. And I think the next couple of years are going to see a real growth in the amount of available styles and beers on cask. It's going to be quite competitive. I hope it doesn't get to the state where more pubs are like, shit, we need to put in more hand pulls. That's not what I want to see. I want to see pubs that go, yeah, we've got three amazing cask beers and every day or every couple of days, it's going to be a completely different set of beers because they're selling through quickly and they're super fresh all the time. That's what I want to see. So yeah, lots to look forward to in terms of cask beer. One more question from Lana Svitankova, who wants to know what was the most unusual beer I had last year and what was the most exciting beer? I've separated that because the most unusual and the most exciting are two very different things. The most unusual beer I had was the Oscar Blues French's Mustard Beer, which I wouldn't drink again. We did get our resident home brewer, Paul Crowther, to make his own recipe for that, which you can read on the Pellicle website. But yeah, it was interesting. Lana references the pickle beer trend and says how this has been a thing in her native Ukraine for a few years already. Honestly, I'd drink more pickle beers. I'm the kind of guy that comes home after a few pints and maybe drinks pickle juice from the jar. My palate likes acidic flavours. I like pickle juice. There, you heard it here first. But I don't think we're going to see a huge trend for that kind of beer here in the UK. The most exciting beer I tried last year, and I mentioned this earlier, was the Bale Breaker Exvis. That was a jaw-dropping mouth on the floor moment like wow this is an absolutely incredible beer in terms of the uk some of the most exciting beers i drank that were a little bit different if we're thinking along this angle were from Dea brewery produced in collaboration with little pomona the cider maker and they did some co-fermentations or hybrid fermentations where they made essentially a light belgian style farmhouse ale and blended that with cider or perry the one with perry I think it was called Blend Number no. 5, made it into my beers of the year list. It was just a stupendous champagne-like beer, very special. But all of those co-ferments they were doing, in terms of exciting, unusual beers, 
These are great to me because my palate likes that drier, acidic flavor in these beer styles. I think there's a lot of potential for co-ferments in terms of beer wine and beer cider hybrids and beer mead hybrids as well. So I think we might see, you know, if brewers are looking to do something a little bit different, we might see a few more of them. But do check out those Dea collaborations with Little Pomona. They're very delicious. Right, I've got one more question and it's from Sam Clough. And he asks, would I ever write an opinionated guide to Manchester pubs? And let me tell you, I would love to do that. The publisher that put out an opinionated guide to London pubs called Hoxton Mini Press do only really put out books about London and I'm not in London anymore so I probably won't write any more books for them. I'd hope to give you a bit of an exclusive now but it's not got to the stage where I can talk about it yet. But what I will say is that I have the desire and intent to produce a book about beer in Manchester. I think that Manchester is the most exciting and interesting city for beer in the UK right now. And I say that as someone who lived in London for a long time. And yes, I accept that Manchester is still shiny and new to me. But I'm also someone who gets to travel around the UK a lot. And I basically am immersed in beer full time. Manchester has a bit of everything from classic beers to Cascale to cutting edge styles like IPA and Imperial Stout through to amazing lagers and bars and pubs that can offer all of this and more. It's a place where you can choose your own adventure in terms of your beer experience. And it's all largely within walking distance in the city centre. In answer to your question, Sam, watch this space. Thank you again to everyone who sent in a question. There were some really good ones there. I hope you got an answer you liked and I hope everyone listening found those answers to be interesting as well. I'll be back in a couple of weeks time with an interview with my friend Chris Schooley who owns a malt house in Colorado called Troubadour Maltings and he is making some of the most interesting malt for beer anywhere in the world. He's also one of the great conversationalists and he's the person that got me so excited about what's happening in malt when I first met him a few years ago. So keep an ear out for that in a few weeks time. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks again for tuning in. If this was your first show, I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you go back and listen to some older episodes. I have been Matthew Curtis and you have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. See you next time.